This morning I have the unusual uh, task of explaining a passage that I'm not going to preach on. I'm not going to preach on it because it's really not found in the Bible, not in the original manuscript of John. And as I pass over this very familiar and favorite passage of many, I want to explain why we're doing so. It's John chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, verse 11. This passage is about the woman who is caught in adultery, and she is brought before Jesus by the Pharisees who are seeking to test Jesus. They say, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis of accusing him. This is such a familiar story, and it's the one where Jesus says back to them, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. You say, what? That's not in the Bible? It appears in the medieval Greek manuscripts, but in the earliest manuscripts, it's not there. But I do believe, as do the, the, most of the commentators, the footnotes in your study Bibles, the uh, D.A. Carson, which is the prime commentator that I'm uh, reading uh, in this study, uh, we, be we believe it to be an authentic story of Jesus. Remember, John said, if everything Jesus said or did were written down, the whole wor world couldn't contain the scroll. So there are many things that John the Baptist and the other gospel writers couldn't include because it's just too much that Jesus said and did. This is one of those things. I believe it is an authentic story of what Jesus said and did. And it's so remarkable that it was passed down to the children and the children in the community through the generations. It was remembered by the church. It was written as you write in the margins of your Bible, perhaps you know, your own uh, thoughts and applications of the scriptures. It began to be included in the scrolls uh, of the Bible, probably not intending uh, to corrupt the text, but just to remember that this did happen. And finally, some scribes began to think, oh, this is in the margins. It must have been omitted by the one who was making that copy, and they began to include it in the text. When the King James Bible was uh, first uh, translated, it was not known that it was not in the original manuscripts, and so it was included in the Bibles. But now we know that it is not. I think you can still hold this passage near and dear, and everything that is taught in it is taught in other places where Jesus forgives sins. He forgives the sins of women such as this. We've already met, seen Jesus meeting the woman at the well as she came, and Jesus said, you've had five husbands. She was this kind of woman. And yet he brought his grace and love to her and reached out to her. So hold this story dear. Don't uh, dismiss it. But since it wasn't in the original text, I'm not preaching on it, am I? But I did have to explain it. We're moving uh, to, ch to chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus is at the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And to understand what's going on here, uh, this is the time. Uh, we're spending several Sundays in this, these passages, but this is the Sunday I want to explain to you what the Feast of Tabernacles was all about. For that, we have to go back into the Old Testament. 
We're going to turn back to Nehemiah chapter 8. The Old Testament is full of the story of how God worked in his people to give us an earthly picture of salvation. Slavery in Egypt is a picture of our slavery to sin. The New Testament applies it that way. The Exodus, as God brought his people out of slavery, is a picture of our salvation, our redemption, how God has brought us out of slavery into sin to be his people. Even going through the Red Sea is a picture of baptism as God forged his people into a people, into a community, into a nation. They are the waters of baptism, which, which define us as the visible church in the world. And then, most important for our text today, the Israelites went through the wilderness. They traveled through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. The promised land is a picture of heaven. The Jordan River is a picture of death. Crossing over Jordan, you, you see that in many songs. Many of the old spirituals talk about crossing Jordan on the other side of Jordan. It's a picture of heaven. So what does the wilderness represent? Oh, it represents exactly where we are today. We're traveling through a fallen world that is still full of lots of troubles. And this virus going around and the challenges of, of coping with life uh, with the things we're having to do to try to prevent our medical facilities being overwhelmed, to prevent those who are most vulnerable uh, being uh, sick, uh, when the younger ones perhaps could survive it uh, more readily, more easily, but they can catch it and give it to those who are vulnerable. It has disrupted our lives completely. We are going through a fallen world. It's traveling through the wilderness on the way to the promised land, on the way to heaven. And so we can identify with the Feast of Tabernacles because it's the feast that remembered how the Israelites had to move uh, their tents, their tabernacles from place to place as God led them through the wilderness. Now, Nehemiah is, is a, a much later time in the history of Israel. It's after the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel have been judged by God. The southern kingdom was taken off into exile in Babylon. They were dispersed. And now they've been allowed to come home and assemble again. Even that I identify with. I look forward to when we can assemble again as God's people to worship him. And it's, I'd like to read Nehemiah chapter 8 about that day because when the Israelites came back uh, to the land of Judah, they were filled with weeping and mourning because they had lost much. They came back and the land was not what it had been before. We don't know when we come back together what the economy looked like, what our uh, savings will look like, what our jobs will look, at, look like. We are praying for complete restoration, aren't we? We really are, that it would be a V-shaped uh, recession or, or even depression. We'd bounce back quickly. It's what we're praying for. When the Israelites came back to the land, they were restored to the land they looked around and there was still a lot of wilderness, a lot of struggle. And that's the context for the reestablishment of the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. In Nehemiah chapter 8, we read this. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, 
which was made up of men and women and all who were to understand. He read aloud from day uh, from daybreak till noon. It's a long sermon. And he faced the square before the water gate. He goes on, and we'll skip down uh, to verse 9. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. They were weeping not just because their circumstances were less, but they realized the sin that had brought about the exile in the first place. They were weeping about their history and where they had come at this point. But the leaders say, this is a day that is sacred. It's a day of rejoicing. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to the Lord our God. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. When we gather back together, it will be a day of joy, and we will celebrate. If we can't get together by Easter, we're going to focus on the resurrection as uh, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, but that's just a foretaste of his own resurrection. And we'll save the big celebration of Easter until we can get back together again and have our, our Easter Sunday then celebrating the, the climactic act of Jesus rising from the dead. The Levites calmed all the people, saying in verse 11, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. So this is in the seventh month. Now we find the specific instructions about how they were to live in that uh, seventh month. And this is where the Feast of Tabernacles is explained. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the scribe to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim his word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches of olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. They remembered how God had provided for them and led them through the wilderness to the promised land. We need to remember how God will provide for us and lead us through this fallen world with glory ahead with heaven ahead for us. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the feast for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. What a great day. This is the feast that Jesus travels to in John chapter 7 and 8. They are celebrating the feast 
of booths or the Feast of Tabernacle. And this pattern of seven days and then the eighth day, the grand celebration, is practiced in our passage in John chapter 8. Let me read just a little bit more uh, from Nehemiah in chapter 9. This is what uh, they, they do when they celebrate on that eighth day, uh, beginning in verse, around verse 5. And the Levites said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name. May it be exalted above all blessing and praise. And then he talks about creation. It talks about the call to Abraham. Now we come down to verse 9. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials, and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with the pillar of cloud. Remember that. By day you led them with the pillar of cloud and by night with the pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Zion and spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just, right, and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. And then notice this. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven. And in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with upholded hand to give them. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen. That's a foreshadowing of how the Pharisees respond to Jesus as he is proclaiming himself at the Feast of Tabernacles in our chapter that we're about to get to. Verse 19. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day, the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their, first, their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. This is the picture that the people who gathered for the Feast of Tabernacles were practicing when Jesus came to the feast. And there were two uh, prominent uh, ceremonies in the Feast of Tabernacles. One was a, a feast of the drawing of water that remembered how God provided from the rock the waters for the people in the desert. And secondly, there was uh, the lighting of the lamps, which remembered how, Jesus, how God had led them by the pillar of fire by night in the darkest of darks, and the pillar of cloud by day, his presence led them through the wilderness. If you feel in a particular wilderness because of the challenges of this day, and this is just one of the struggles that we have, we still have all the rest of our problems and challenges, all the rest of our illnesses and diseases, all the rest of our relationship conflicts, all the rest of the thorns and thistles that make us struggle uh, in this world. We still have all those things, plus the virus. If you are hungry and thirsty 
and feel the need of provision, you don't know where to turn, you don't know where to go, this passage is for you. Because Jesus proclaims, as he comes to the Feast of Tabernacles, that he is the bread of life. He's the true manna. I'd just like to go back to John chapter 7, because this is the last thing Jesus said before we pick up in chapter 8. It's verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. If the first time you read that, that was just kind of abstract, you have to remember they're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. They are remembering how God provided for them in the desert water from a rock in the middle of the desert. And Jesus is saying, I am that rock. Come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, streams of living water will flow from within him. In the, in the passage in Nehemiah, it connects with God's provision for them with his pouring out the Spirit. The Holy Spirit you know, being poured out on his people is represented in the physical terms by his refreshing them with water from the rock in the desert. What truly satisfies? Physical water satisfies our physical thirst for our body. As Jesus said to the woman at the well, there are deeper thirsts, and I can satisfy those. Streams of living water will flow from you. The Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus uh, was meaning the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. He had not accomplished salvation yet. God was working on his people, with his people, among his people, through his people. The Holy Spirit was there. The Holy Spirit was leading them uh, through the desert. But the people of God were not themselves redeemed yet. All the sins of those saints in the Old Testament were in a sense piled up, stored up. And Jesus was going to go to the cross to pay for their sins and for ours, for all who put their hope and trust in him. He would cleanse his temple his people, his body, so that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on us. And we would be the temple of the Holy Spirit. Those are the streams of living water that flow up within us so that we truly have fellowship with God. Sin no longer separates. Now let's turn. Those are the last things Jesus said in, the, in John chapter 7. The crowds are divided and they're confused and they're wondering, who is this? Is this really the Messiah or how could he come from Galilee? The Pharisees are, are criticizing him and they send the temple guards. The guards come back and, and they're saying, we couldn't, we couldn't touch him. You, you should hear how this man speaks. And you know, they get all mad and angry and Nicodemus speaks up and says, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him? They turn on Nicodemus because they're all mad. They are rejecting Jesus. They are closing their eyes to him. So all of that discussion fills up the, the last verses of chapter 7. But the last thing Jesus says is what I just read to you. This is the next thing he says. If before he said, come to me and you'll never thirst. Here he says, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me 
will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you read this without understanding the Old Testament or the context that's based on the Old Testament of the Feast of Tabernacles, you probably thought this is some abstract principle. He's the light of the world. He brings understanding. But in the context of this feast, who is Jesus claiming to be? They're celebrating by the, the lighting of the lamps, remembering that God led them through the wilderness with that pillar of fire by day, the pillar of cloud by uh, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, and that was His presence. Moses said, "I, I dare not venture forth unless you go with us. Your presence must be our guide." And God said, "I will be your guide," and it was His glory presence in a veiled sense. If God's glory presence had come in its fullest sense, it would have consumed sinners. But in that veiled sense, as there was a veil in the temple, he revealed his glory to them and he led them through the desert. He was the light that led them through the darkest hour. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Not just for Israel. This is for everyone. Not just the Old Testament picture of going through the wilderness, having left Egypt to the promised land. That was a picture of our salvation. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me. Oh, now that makes so much sense. It's not just doing what Jesus says. He's drawing on the picture of the, of the people in the dark of the wilderness. Following the light of the very presence of God through that wilderness to the promised land. He's saying, follow me. I'll take you home. I'll take you to heaven. And heaven is not just that spiritual place that is the present reality when our bodies are committed to the ground. Heaven is the life to come when our bodies themselves are raised. It is uh, the life eternal in the new heaven and new earth where we are recreated body and soul. It is glorious. Jesus is saying, follow me, I will lead you home. And to get us there, he leads us to the cross. Now that's the big claim of our passage. The rest of our passage as the, the Pharisees arguing with him, saying, you don't have the right to make such a claim. But this is the claim. This is what I want you to remember. But the Pharisees closed their eyes, and they're not going to follow the light. You can just picture the people of Israel out in the desert seeing the pillar of, of fire by night leaving and going, and them just closing their eyes and saying, I'm not following. What's going to happen to them? They're going to be left in the dark. They're going to be lost in the desert. They will... They will die without the provision of water and manna from heaven and the guidance that would lead them to the promised land. But that's what the Pharisees are doing here. Verse 13, the Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Now, they are throwing back at Jesus what Jesus said in John chapter 5 in verse 30. Or verse 31, Jesus said, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. And they're throwing it back at him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. And it's so easy for people to be cynical and skeptical and to try to set Jesus' words up to where he's self-contradictory. He's not. What does he mean in John uh, chapter 5? He's saying, if I, were, if I alone were to testify about myself, then any cult leader can do that. But he goes on to say, there's another who testifies in my favor, 
and I know that favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. He's referring to his heavenly Father. He's not saying his testimony is not valid. He's saying if I were just a cult leader, you could dismiss me. But my testimony is true. And here, when they throw that back at him, is saying you're not telling the truth. You're making false claims. Jesus responds here. He says, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you have no idea where I came from, where I come from, or where I am going. In other words, the Pharisees who are seeking to judge him are the ones who are in the dark. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. Again, if you take that absolutely, you could say, well, wait a minute, in other passages, passages Jesus has said the Father entrusts judgment to him, and he will come and judge everyone. Don't set up Jesus' words to contradict one another. Understand the nuance. Here, Jesus is saying, when he says, uh, I pass judgment on no one, he's reflecting the purpose of his first coming. He didn't come to judge. He came to save. He came to go to the cross to pay the penalty of sin. He came to take God's judgment for sin upon himself. That's what he came first to do. So that when in the end he comes to judge the living and the dead, there is the means of rescue from that judgment for all who put their hope and trust in him and are found in him. Our sins are paid for already. They're covered. That's what atonement means. And we're rescued from that final judgment. Jesus doesn't say, I will never judge. He's saying here, right now my purpose is to save. I'm not passing judgment. And that opens the door for him to go on to say, but if I do judge, my decisions are right because I'm not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your father? Now, did you pick up how snide this is? Earlier, they were after him because he claimed my father, and they recognized he was claiming to be God himself, to have this special, unique relationship. He didn't say our father. He said my father, and they were rejecting him and persecuting him for that. They already had gotten it, but since they rejected that claim, and they closed their eyes. When you close your eyes, you're in darkness. The theme of light and darkness, of not following the, the pillar of light at night, and, and say, I'm staying here and fending for myself in the desert, that they were closing their eyes to it. Now they're being snide. Not only are they rejecting what they already said, they may be tweaking him because they know rumors of Jesus being born to a woman who conceived before she and Joseph were married. Who's your father? Who's your father? That's very possible. Jesus responds, you do not know me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. Every time it says that, it reminds us that Jesus is the one who voluntarily laid down his life for us. He wasn't subject to the whims of the crowd, to the whims of the leaders. When they demanded you know, that Pilate crucify him, Jesus could have walked away then. But instead, he laid down his life for us. 
Once more Jesus said to them, I'm going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Picture that pillar of fire just moving away from the camp at night. And he's saying, you're not following me. So if you don't if, trust in me, if you don't believe in me, if you, don't, if you close your eyes to me, I'm leaving. And you're not going to get to the promised land. And then he makes it very, very clear. If last week uh, Jesus said, the world hates me because I testified that its deeds are evil. He's leading us to conviction of sin. This week he's adding to that by saying three times. I want you to notice what he says three times. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But Jesus continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. That's two times. See, don't be left behind. The, the light's moving out. Follow me. Trust in me. I will lead you to life. I'll open the doors of heaven to you. How does he do that? He's not just criticizing the people when he says, you, you will die in your sins. He's not just putting them down. Last week when he said, I testified that the, the world's deeds are evil, he's not just being self-righteous. He is righteous. He's the only one that has the right to be. The one who is saying this is the one who's going to the cross to pay the penalty of sin. You have to remember that. He's saying, follow me because I'm going to go to the cross to pay for your sins. Put your hope and trust in me. I'll make the sacrifice. It, it reflects that verse. It's a favorite verse that while we were yet sinners, Christ loved us and gave his life for us. Herein is the love of God demonstrated. He leads us to the cross where he pays for our sins. Jesus isn't narrow-minded. He's not putting us down. He's more like the doctor saying, if you don't do this, you will die. But if you trust me, I can save you. That's what Jesus is saying here. So he's already said twice now, if you do not believe I'm the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. Their response, who are you? That is blinders on. They've already understood enough who he was claiming to be to believe he was committing blasphemy. But since they didn't believe, they're saying that can't possibly be true. I'm ruling that out. Who are you then? Jesus answered, just what I've been claiming all along. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is reliable. And what I have heard from him, I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, that refers to the cross. So when you put me on the cross and I pay the penalty of sin, 
you'll know the whole picture. I came not to condemn. I came to save. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody is going to react at the cross. But because of the cross, the witness of the cross becomes a statement to make the gospel plain to all the world. In Acts chapter 2, when uh, the crowd gathers and the Holy Spirit comes upon uh, the people and Peter preaches and explains the gospel, Peter concludes his sermon uh, saying this. Verse 36 of chapter 2, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When you see the Son of Man lifted up, you will know I am who I claim to be. And they realized it. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of of your sins. This is the message we have to proclaim. We have the same hope that the world has for the here and now. We hope that we will you know, conquer this virus, that we will resist its spread, that there will be time for cures or vaccines or herd immunity to take effect. We want the immediate threat to take away. We understand the world when it looks at the crowds on the beaches and is horrified. How can you do that? If you associate it, somebody has it and you spread it to everybody, then you go back home, you spread this virus all over the world. And the, the world in some ways is saying the very thing Jesus is saying, you keep doing this, you will die. You will die. But that's all here and now. Jesus amps it up and gives us the biggest picture. He says, if you don't believe in me, if you don't follow me, to the cross where I pay for sins. If you don't trust in me for forgiveness of your sins, then you will die in your sins. And our sin separates us from God. Our sin, separation from God is not geography. God is everywhere. It's alienation from God. And the Bible describes uh, separation from God eternally in the most dismal, horrific terms. It calls it hell. We don't want that. We don't want to go there. But if we believe in Jesus, we find he's the bread of heaven that brings life. He's the water that satisfies the soul. He is the light that leads us to the cross where he is lifted up and he provides for our redemption. If you dismiss this and say, there goes the church, just being spiritual, we need help here and now. Are you not a lot like the Pharisees who just close their eyes and say, can't be, can't be instead of opening your eyes, and then you have light, not just for the ultimate to get to heaven, but you have light that leads you through the wilderness we're in right now. It's a hope that cannot be taken away. It's provision uh, for the here and now. Our Heavenly Father cares for us, knows what we need, and he will watch over us and carry us through these difficulties and sufferings. We can put our hope and trust in him. It's a higher, grander message that still applies to the here and now. Today, do you know Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith in him? Do you follow him as he leads you to glory? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless by your spirit 
that your spirit would quicken our hearts like a desert place that would spring forth with flowers, that our hearts would be made alive to faith in Jesus Christ, that we would trust you in these trying times, that you would lead us through this wilderness, this fallen world, that you would provide for us in the desert water to quench our deepest thirst, bread to satisfy that comes from heaven and leads to heaven. And we thank you for Christ being lifted up on the cross. Those who don't recognize him now will yet one day when Jesus comes again, for Christ is, is having done these things, the Father has, is pleased to exalt him to the highest place where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. But we don't want to wait until we face him in that final day, in that final judgment, to acknowledge him as Lord without the hearts to trust in him as Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.